In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start with two verses of Scripture this morning. <clears throat> One is Third John, the letter that John wrote to his dear friend. And then also Psalm 35. <clears throat> In Third John, it only has one chapter, verse 2, I want you to notice something that John said. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. We started last week, you may recall if you were with us, we started last week a series on biblical prosperity. And this is something that the Lord has put on my heart several weeks back to teach at or around the first of the year. And there are different ways that the Lord leads me and directs me to speak in, in the ways that he has for me to speak or what he wants me to speak about. But always, when I have advanced notice, several weeks, maybe a couple of months out front of what God wants to do or wants me to share and minister in the church. Those always turn out to be teachings that inspire me, instruct me, and make a significant change in my Christian walk. The Word of God is always true and it's always good and it's always relevant. Now in 3 John 2, John is writing a letter, a personal letter to his friend Gaius. And his wish, and sometimes people uh, will make the complaint by saying, well, yeah, but this was written to a certain guy. But the real important issue is whether or not the Holy Ghost inspired it to be written. See, if the Holy Ghost inspired this to be written and saved us a copy, miraculously saved us a copy of it, and he did, then this is the Holy Ghost speaking through John and not just John's individual ideas or wants. So if this was Holy Ghost inspired and the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, then what John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted for his friend, God wants for everybody. Amen. Let's read it again. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. I want you to notice prosperity is placed on an, equal, uh, an even par with healing. Did you see that? God wants the same thing for you regarding healing for your physical body as he wants for your finances. Now, there are hundreds of scriptures in the Old and New Testament that identify God's desire for his people to walk in health. And even though there aren't the same number of scriptures, still plenty of them, but not the same number of scriptures concerning prosperity or material blessing, the desire of God for his children is the same. Now notice it's conditional. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as. Everybody say even as. Even as your soul prospers. Now the soul prospering is identified by Paul writing to the church as the renewing of the mind. So he's saying that our minds should be renewed to both prosperity and health in order to walk in God's perfect will, his divine will for our lives. I wish above all things. Well, if, if John is speaking that by inspiration of the Spirit too, then God wishes above all things for us 
that we live our lives prospering and in health. Even as our soul prospers, even as our mind is renewed to the truth. Now turn back with me to Psalm 35. Psalm 35, verse 27, it says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. This word prosperity is the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It's translated a bunch of different things. The the vast majority of the the 200 and some odd times that it's uh, recorded in the scripture, in the Old Testament, the majority of times it's translated peace. But there are also other ways, many other ways that it's translated. And it simply means, as I said, well-being in every area. Well-being in every area. But now notice what this is surrounded by. First of all, it says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Well, if he's talking about material prosperity, material blessing, then the Bible is telling us in no uncertain terms, very clearly, that God has a righteous cause when it comes to material blessings. In other words, he has a purpose. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, we looked at this last week briefly. In Genesis chapter 12, when God appeared to Abram, he said, if you'll obey me and and go where I tell you to go, I'll bring three specific things into your life. He promised him three specific things. He said, I'll make your name great. That has to do with his children and his descendants. And then he said, I'll bless you. Proverbs 10, 22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it. Genesis chapter 13 tells us that God made Abram rich in silver and cattle and gold. And then the third blessing he promised him was thou shalt be a blessing. Now, which of those are the more important of the three? I'll make your name great. I'll bless you and thou shalt be a blessing. Which one's top of the list? They're all even. They're all equal. So just as God wants us, and this is his righteous cause, just as God wants us to prosper and be in health, he wants us to have a purpose for that prosperity, and the purpose for that prosperity is to be a blessing to others. So then that necessitates, by definition, that creates a situation where we have to have enough for ourselves and more so that we can be a blessing to other people. Now, folks, you know the difference between the church and the Jews when it comes to prosperity, when it comes to Bible prosperity? The Jews have renewed their mind to God's will for them to prosper above and beyond any people on the face of the earth. Now, that should not be. But the church has substituted things for God's word. The church says, well, we're blessed spiritually. And since we're blessed spiritually with the new birth, with the ability to be born again, then that takes the place of the material blessing and prosperity that God offered the Jews. Says who? When did people change God's plan? The Bible says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. The Bible says that if we're Christ, then are we Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So who has the right in the body of Christ to change the material blessing that God provided for and say that it's all spiritual blessing now? Don't get me wrong. If we had to choose between salvation and prosperity, 
I'd choose salvation. I'd choose eternity. But who said we had to choose? Rather, folks, I'd make the choice to accept salvation as including all that the Bible says that it is. So he said, let the Lord be magnified. Let them that favor my righteous cause say this continually. Now, I want you to realize the Bible is telling you what you should do when it comes to your belief in God's plan of provision. And that is speak the word. Let them say continually. Well, how often is continually? Continually seems to indicate it should never stop. Now, how much of the church world does that? Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. As I said just a moment ago, or started to say, the difference between the Jews and the church is that the Jews have renewed their mind to the truth of God's, uh, God's plan of prosperity and blessing. That doesn't mean that they look at, I'm talking about the Jewish people, it doesn't mean that they look at a relationship with God as being the foundation of what material things they have and expect to reap from the earth. In fact, there are probably more secular Jews in the world than there are religious Jews. And secular Jews just recognize that prosperity and provision is a part of the heritage that they have. They may casually know or, or vaguely know that God made a promise to Abraham and that his seed were separated according to God's plan from all the other people on the earth but Jews that are prospering and walking in great abundance for the most part, or for a great part at least, aren't prospering because they're trusting God for it. They just know it's part of their heritage. Now, the flip side of that is you got the church who has the same blessings that are constantly wondering, will God help me? Will God provide for me? Will God do for me? But this Psalm of David, Psalm 35, indicates that David understood that the key to renewing the mind is what you say. And the Bible instructed, he instructed us by the Holy Ghost to say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. God delights when you prosper. God is blessed, God is magnified when you are abundantly provided for. Now, folks, think about how God created this earth. He made it perfect. He made more trees than Adam and Eve could sit underneath the shade. He made more grass than they could walk barefoot through. He made more water than they could ever drink. And God put man in the middle of it and said, this is yours. God made provision for every aspect of his life before he ever put him in the middle of the earth. Before Adam was created, before God spoke him into existence, God made an earth that would uh, uh, provide abundantly for all of mankind. Now, I want to read to you some Old Testament scriptures, some things that show God's plan and purpose concerning finances and money and the blessing that he made to Abraham. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. 
For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. This is God's plan for his people on the earth. Notice he doesn't say just bide your time down here on the earth and when you get to heaven everything will be right. This is God's plan for his people here on the earth. This is his plan for you and me. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he shall give thee, or which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Here he's talking about the renewing of the mind, using different terminology, but he's talking about thinking and understanding the right things. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, those things must be okay with God. And when the herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, God must be okay with that too. That then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. In other words, he's saying, I provided for you and took care of you when everything looked to be impossible. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou shalt say in my heart, my power and my might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. You know what the power to get wealth is? Faith. It's how we receive everything from God, isn't it? Let not the man that wavers think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, James told us. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, that's Abraham's covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. In other words, Moses is telling, Moses is going off the scene, children of Israel about to go into the promised land with Joshua as their leader, rather than Moses. And the reason for that is, there were two times, two events that took place when the children of Israel left Egypt, the bondage of Egypt. Now, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament things that happened to Israel were examples for us. Well, we know from what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Israel coming through the Red Sea and being delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians was a type of salvation. In other words, it was an example of you and I coming out of the earth or out of the world system through the new birth by being made a new creation in Christ Jesus. That was the fulfillment of the bondage of Egypt, of the bondage of Israel delivered by the Egyptians. And so in the wilderness, they came to places where there weren't water. There wasn't enough water. Now we're talking about water for millions of people and their animals. We don't know exactly how many millions, but most estimates range from two to nine. I'm sorry, two to seven million. So even if you take the lowest number, we're talking about a big crowd of people. So they came to a place 
and God instructed Moses to go stand next to a rock inside of all of Israel and take the rod that was in his hand that symbolized God's power and strike that rock. Well, Moses did exactly what God told him to do and water came flowing out of the rock. That's what it mentioned here briefly just before. Water came flowing out of that rock in such an abundance that it provided for all of the millions of the children of Israel and their animals for an extended period of time. It wasn't just a quick drink and they moved on. They stayed there for some period of time. Later on, they come to a place where they're out of water again and God speaks to Moses and he says, this time go stand before the rock and instead of striking it, speak to it. Now folks, the rock being stricken the first time was a type of Jesus who was stricken and afflicted of God, Isaiah 53 says. It's a type of Jesus being crucified, punished, smitten, struck by the hand of God to pay the price of redemption. But the second time, the example when Moses is supposed to speak to the rock is an example of how we receive the same things that Jesus provided for, provided for the children of Israel. But we don't do it by striking the rock. Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross again to pay any price for you or me for sin, sickness, or poverty. But Moses was mad at the people. He was angry at their attitude. And so instead of speaking to the rock, he messed up God's example by hitting it the second time. Now, folks, that was serious enough, so serious, that it kept Moses from being able to go into the promised land. Now, again, look at the symbolism of that, the imagery of that. Because Moses wouldn't speak to the rock, he didn't take part in the promised land benefits and blessings that God had planned. You got a lot of people in the body of Christ doing the same thing. They're looking for Jesus to come back and do something else for them to receive their healing or to heal their finances or to bring them righteousness. And as a result, they don't enter into the things that God had provided for them, the very things that they want to have from God. But if we're going to take part of everything God has made for us, we're going to have to do it his way. And his way is to say, speak the word. Let them say continually, remember Psalm 35, verse 27 said. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. We should, according to the scripture, be constantly speaking words, speaking scriptures, speaking the truth of what God has planned for us. And folks, God has not planned for any of us that we just barely get by. He's planned for all of us to walk in abundance. Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant. Here's his righteous cause. Here's the righteous cause that was spoken of in Psalm 35, verse 27. Here's the prospering soul that John wrote to his friend Gaius about, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore unto thy fathers, as it is this day. As it is this day means that the same promise that God made Abraham that made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold is just as true and just as real today as the day that he spoke it. God wants to establish his covenant with his people. And we are his people. 
Let me skip over now to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Verse 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And you know this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out army, and his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all of his land. And what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses and to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you. And how the Lord has destroyed them until this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came into this place. And what he did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben. How that the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their households and their tents and their substance. All the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. They saw the same things their parents, the previous generation saw. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, whether you go to possess it. How do we possess the land? Here's the, the New Testament fulfillment, or the New Covenant fulfillment of taking the promised land. See, some people in the church world think that the promised land is a type of heaven. But there aren't any enemies to fight in heaven. There aren't, aren't any battles to win in heaven. So it can't be a type of heaven. Well, if it's not a type of heaven, what is it a type of? It's a type of the new covenant. It's a type of the blessings that belong to the children of Israel. John mentioned two of them when he talked about prospering and being in health. It's the blessings of the church age where we can be filled with the Spirit, not just saved, but filled with the Spirit and speak divine secrets to God, where we can walk in prosperity and walk in health. And all those things come by speaking the Word, not by God having to do something else that He hadn't yet done, not by Jesus spending more time on the cross for us. The Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That means the work's finished. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey. For the land where thou goest to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where thou sowedest thy seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass if thou shalt diligently hearken unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in thy corn, thy wine, and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you. And he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, that the, the land yield not her fruit. And lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord thy God giveth you. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul. And bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be frontlets between your eyes. Notice it's all based on the word. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. 
and thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers to give them, notice this phrase, as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, folks, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray this. In Matthew chapter 6, it's recorded, he said, Pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he talks more about forgiving and so forth. But I want to stop there and point something out. Jesus gives us the definition of the kingdom of God. The definition of the kingdom of God is very simply where the will of God is done on the earth, just like it is in heaven. Now, folks, if you'll think back to the creation before Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, the earth was a duplicate of heaven. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. There was no poverty. There was no lack. There was no sickness, no disease. So when God made an end of everything that he made in the, at the end of the first six days to rest on the seventh day, there was nothing that was different from how heaven is. God's will was being done on the earth in righteousness just like it is in heaven. And now here in the Old Testament, even though sin and death is ruling and reigning, they have the promise of a Messiah, but Jesus hadn't yet come. But through keeping the word of God, obeying the commandments of God, believing in his word, speaking the word, he said that Israel, through their obedience, through their relationship with God, through his word, could have days of heaven upon the earth. In other words, manifest the kingdom of God here and now. Well, if it's possible for them, because of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and because Jesus is the Lord and Savior of our lives, we become, therefore, Abraham's children, his spiritual children, and heirs according to the promise. Why couldn't we experience days of heaven on the earth, too? Again, God's no respecter of persons, and the answer is we can and should, and will. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Here's the renewing of the mind again, folks. Here's speaking the word. It's always the same. It never changes. The conditions never change. If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city. What are you doing in the city? Well, I don't know, but whatever it is will be blessed. Blessed shalt thou be in the field. What are you going to do in the field? I don't know, but it's going to be blessed. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground. And the fruit of your cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Folks, I want you to realize he's literally saying wherever you go, you can't escape the blessing. If you hearken diligently to the word. If you meet the conditions. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before your face. 
They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Notice in verse 7, it doesn't say the Lord shall cause your enemies to rise up against thee to be smitten because you smite them. It says you'll watch it. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. <laughs> that sounds like other times in Israel's history when God got the enemies of Israel fighting among themselves. It doesn't say you'll have to do the fighting. It says you'll witness the victory. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command. Please notice that word command. Now, before we read any further, I want to ask you a question. Who is able to resist the Lord's command? When the Lord commands something to be done, isn't it done? Now, that command may have to be received by faith in us. We may have to exercise faith in that command to realize it in our lives through believing in our heart and saying with our mouth. But it is the Lord's command. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. What's a storehouse? It's where you keep your stuff. Now, folks, you only have storehouses if you have enough to keep yourself going without. That's a very poor way to say that. Let me back up and try it again. If you're living hand to mouth, you don't have need of a storehouse because you don't have anything to put it in it. So here where it says, the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. God is already presupposed. And this reveals to us that he expects you to have enough to save up. Not just to use for your daily provision. The Lord shall command the blessings upon thee in thy storehouses. And in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now for them, the land that he gave them was the promised land, the land of Canaan. But for us, the promised land is whatever he has for us to do and wherever he has for us to go under the new covenant. See, for them, it was a geographic blessing. For us, it's an eternal blessing. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. In other words, God is telling his children, telling Israel, and if we be Christ, then are we Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Same thing belongs to us. He's saying, God is saying that he wants people of the world to be able to see us and see that there's a difference between us and them through the things that we possess. Now, I'm not discounting witnessing. I'm not saying that it's the most important thing. But folks, we've been hearing that prosperity is not supposed to matter for so long that we're going to have to put a little bit extra emphasis on it to get our minds renewed to the truth. We're not saying prosperity is the only thing. But bless God, it's one thing. All the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee, and the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. Now, what are goods? Stuff, material things. 
Why are they called goods? To listen to most Christians, they ought to be called bads. God calls them goods, which means they have to be good. The Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open to thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. Now, folks, a lot of people have some weird and squirrely ideas on borrowing and lending. A lot of Christians go around saying that people ought not to borrow money from banks here in, in this day and hour and so forth. But if borrowing is wrong, then lending would have to be wrong, wouldn't it? So if God's telling us that it's wrong to borrow, but we should be willing or able to lend, then he's instructing us to participate in the lie and the sin. He's simply saying you'll have enough where you won't have to borrow. He's not saying it's wrong to borrow. He's saying you won't have to. Thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God. It's always conditional. It's always conditional upon the word. It's always conditional on believing the word of God in your heart and saying it with your mouth. That's how your soul prospers. That's how your material possessions increase. Thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou shalt hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Now turn with me over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 tells us the things that Jesus will shed his blood for. The things that he will provide for us. Through God's great plan of redemption. Verse 4, surely he, speaking of Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those two words, griefs and sorrows, are translated pains and sicknesses in other places of the scripture. Surely he has borne our pains and carried our sickness. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Notice the chastisement of his peace. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. This word peace is the word shalom. It's the same word that's translated prosperity over in Psalm 35, 27. Let them shout for joy which favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who delighteth in the prosperity of his servant. Folks, I want you to see something. I want you to be so well convinced that nothing could ever turn your mind away from it. And that is that Jesus shed blood for your material well-being. Jesus shed blood for your financial well-being. Is that all he shed his blood for? No. But he puts it right there on top of everything else. He equates it just like John did in the New Testament. My beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. The Bible puts three things on an even basis 
sin, sickness, and poverty. And Jesus paid the price for all of them. He shed blood for your material well-being just like he shed blood for your spiritual recreation. Just like he shed blood to pay the price for sickness and disease, he shed the same blood for you and I to prosper and be in health. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he may divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider of you? Jesus was not a social justice warrior. He did not come to bring everybody into an equal outcome or equal level of prosperity. His work on the cross provided an equal opportunity. But remember the parable of the sower sowing the word. Some people's hearts are like the wayside ground. It doesn't produce anything. Some people's hearts are like the stony ground, which produces or looks like it's going to produce, but then quits pretty quickly. Some people's hearts are like the thorny ground, who produce in a measure, but it gets choked out with other things. And other people's hearts are like the good ground, who bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, and 100, some 100. The idea that everybody should have the same thing. And here's the, here's the thing we hear today about communism and socialism. The government should provide the same for everybody. Folks, God is not a socialist. He's not a communist. Remember the parable of the talents? Where one guy was given five talents and in his master's absence turned it into ten Another guy was given two, and in the master's absence, he turned it into five. They both got the same reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But the one guy that was given the one talent, he dug a hole and put it in the ground, wrapped it in a napkin and put it in the ground. And his excuse for that, when the master came back, his excuse for that was he said, I know who you are. You're the kind of person that reaps where he doesn't sow. You're a hard person. And I wasn't willing to take a chance to put your money at risk. Well, the master asked him, he said, well, why didn't you at least put it in the bank so I could gain interest? And then he mocks him. The master, the ruler that gave him the talent to begin with, to use and to occupy until he returns, mocked him. He said sarcastically, oh, you know me, do you? You know me to be somebody that reaps where I don't sow. You know me to be a hard taskmaster. Folks, the point of the story is this. It was a failure to know and understand who the master was that robbed the one-talent guy of anything and everything that he had. And I would suggest to you that the thing that holds people back from walking in the material and financial blessing 
that God has for us is a wrong understanding of God. In other words, the one talent guy didn't renew his mind to the truth. Now, the one talent guy, the master takes the talent and gives it to the guy that had 10. Now, in Luke's account, Matthew 25 and Luke 19 are the two stories about this, the parable of the talents. In Luke's account, the people that are standing by said to the master, you're giving the guy with 10 another one? He's already got 10. And that shows us the character and the nature of God too. God doesn't have a problem with how much you have if you've proven yourself faithful. God didn't put the stops on anybody and say, well, that's enough for you. Folks, as the creator of heaven and earth, God is fabulously wealthy. Now, don't misread something that I'm not saying in that. There's no need for, for money in heaven. But God is fabulously wealthy. He owns everything that's here on the earth. The silver and gold is his. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. God is very much a capitalist, at least to the stories that Jesus told. Now, some people might say, yeah, but wait a minute. What about in Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4 talks about how they, the early church sold what they had and had everything in common. Well, folks, people that use that as some kind of proof text that God is a communist or operates in a communal way don't understand the history of the Jews or the church at that time. It was just a few short years before the persecution against the church came into such, a, uh, such prominence that everybody in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, lost what they had anyway, either from leaving town or having what they owned confiscated. That was just a work of the Holy Ghost to enable them to use the things that they had while they still had them in their possessions. It wasn't God's plan for the world to be communistic or socialistic from that point forward. God's very much a capitalist. He rewards you according to your works. And he doesn't save you according to your works. But we earn rewards in heaven based on the use of the things that he has given to us down here. Well, amen. Let's start again. Verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Folks, I couldn't agree with that more wholeheartedly. Material things and finances are not the end of all or the end of anything except poverty. But at the same time, knowing full well that man's life consists of more than just the material things that he possesses, at the same time, we have to recognize the reality that Jesus paid a price for our provision. Thank God he did. 
And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater or bigger barns. And there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat and drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he which layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you, by taking thought, can add one stature to his stature, one cubit? If you then be not able to do that which is least, why take you thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Notice he speaks of the answer, the means, the methods of being provided for financially and material, materially as through the operation of faith. Through the operation of faith. See, folks, that's why faith has to be the power to get wealth. And seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither ye be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things, but rather seek you the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, what all things is he talking about? Material and financial provisions. That's what he's speaking of, isn't it? So he's saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He's clearly saying, don't pursue the things. Pursue the giver of the things. And God will take care of you. God will provide for you. But that does not discount the fact that Jesus shed blood for us to have it. And for me, that overrides everything. If Jesus felt something was so important to shed his blood for, I'm in. Rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Please notice verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Then material and financial possessions, inheritance, inheritance has to be part of the kingdom of God then. Remember Jesus defined the kingdom of God for us where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Verse 33, sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither does moth corrupt. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Please notice that phrase in verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now turn with me over to uh, Mark chapter 10, please. 
I'm going to start reading verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that he's rich now. He is called the rich young ruler. I wonder where those riches came from. He seems to indicate that God and his relationship to the commandments of God had something to do with it. All these things have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him. I want you to notice something folks. Jesus loved him when he was rich. Jesus didn't condition his love and say, well, if you do what I'm going to tell you to do in just a moment, then I'll love you. Jesus loved this guy. And he's offering him something that only, according to the scriptural references that we have, that he only offered to the three of his disciples that were the closest to him, Peter, James, and John. This is discipleship wording, phraseology. Jesus beholding him said, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever you have and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Notice that phrase treasure in heaven, thou shalt have treasure in heaven. We just read from Luke chapter 12, I think it was verse 34, for where your heart is, there will you, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is trying to identify to this guy that there's one thing that he's missing. Now folks, I got to tell you, if Jesus stood before me and told me there's only one thing that I'm missing out on or one thing I need to correct, I consider that the place for the victory.